just appeared, A New History of Greek Mathematics by Stanford Professor Reveal Nets, Cambridge University Press. Let's do a book review. It will be a critical review. The main theme is the sciences versus the humanities. Note indeed the title of the book, A New History. Nets's new history represents the new humanities-centered uh, dominance in the field, as opposed to the old histories written by mathematically inclined people. In my opinion, new does not mean better in this case, and I will tell you why. Let's start by attacking a city. The enemy are hunkering down behind their city walls. We are going to have to scale the walls with ladders. How long should we make the ladders? The ancient historian Polybius has the answer. I quote him. The method of discovering the right length for ladders is as follows. If the height of the wall be, let us say, 10 of a given measure, the length of the ladders must be a good 12. The distance from the wall at which the ladder is planted must, in order to suit the convenience of those mounting, be half of the length of the ladder. For if they are placed further off, they are apt to break when crowded, and if set nearer to the perpendicular, are very insecure for the scalers. So here again it is evident that those who aim at success in military plans and surprises of towns must have studied geometry. That's great stuff. So indeed, you want to put the ladder, it, it shouldn't be too too flat, because then it will break under the weight of many people walking on it, and you don't want to put it too upright, because then it might tip over, and the enemy might give it a little push, and everybody falls to the ground. So that's indeed, that's the rule. You, you need the distance to, from the uh, wall to the foot of the ladder to be one half the length of the ladder, according to Polybius. So Nets gets this story wrong, in my opinion, because here is how he concludes. And then, of course, we are supposed to apply, Polybius leaves this implicit, Pythagoras' theorem. I don't think so, and I don't think that's what Polybius intended. Uh, sure enough, uh, you can indeed solve for the length of the ladder uh, using the Pythagorean theorem if you want to. However, that is a very clumsy and inefficient way to do it. If you did this... The, the modern way, you would need to do some algebra followed by some calculation involving a square root. Uh, look, these guys didn't have calculators uh, on their phones back then, you know. Do you expect carpenters in the military to be able to calculate square roots by hand? In fact, Polybius has already told you everything you need to know with his numerical example. If the wall is 10, the ladder should be 12, he says. But this is a, an argument that scales. What Polybius is really saying is that whatever the height of the wall may be, the ladder is always 20% longer than that. That is all you need to know. No Pythagorean theorem is needed. And those numbers, the 20% rule, is a, a rule of thumb indeed, if we are to go off the more theoretical characterization of the optimal length that Polybius gives uh, after that. So if you want to calculate it according to the more theoretical rule, you don't need the Pythagorean theorem for that either. There's a much better way, a simple way that you can easily teach to an illiterate carpenter in five minutes. It goes like this. Uh, draw an equilateral triangle, just as Euclid does, proposition one of the elements. Now cut it down the middle with a perpendicular to the vertex of the equilateral triangle. Then you split it into two uh, right angle triangles where the, the base of such a, of the, one of those right-angled triangles is exactly half of the hypotenuse. So this corresponds precisely indeed to Polybius' rule that the distance along the ground is half the length of the ladder. So now we have a scale model of the scenario that we want to, to realize. The height down the middle of the equilateral triangle represents the city wall, the side of the equilateral triangle represents the ladder, and it is precisely indeed half its own length from the foot of the wall, exactly as Polybius says that it should be for optimal uh, stability. So, if we are given the height of the wall, that may be, for example, 10 meters, then we divide the height of the triangle into 10 equal parts, and we take a blank ruler, we mark those 10 marks on it, then we take this ruler with this unit of length that we just put on it, and we measure the hypotenuse of the triangle. However many marks long that is, that's how many meters our ladder needs to be. So, 
simple piece of cake. It is very easy to improvise this in the field without any specialized knowledge, without any special tools, without computing square roots or having tables of trigonometry or anything like that. While Nets is busy trying to teach his carpenters the algebra quadratic expressions and how to extract square roots, I have already scaled his walls using my much quicker methods. And that's what you get when you put humanities people in charge of mathematics. So I wouldn't trust Nets when it comes to mathematics, even when he says, uh, of course, as he does in that quote, if you, if you noticed. Here's another example. Did you know that parabolas are pointier than hyperbolas? Well, apparently so, if we are to believe uh, Professor Nets. This claim occurs in a discussion of Archimedes. Archimedes studied uh, solids of revolution obtained by rotating a conic section around its axis. Here are Nets's words about this. In the case of a parabola, this will be a more pointed shape. In the case of a hyperbola, this may be more bowl-like. This is total BS. Parabolas are not more pointed than hyperbolas. And you can easily see this, for example, from the following fact. You can draw a hyperbola having any two given lines as asymptotes and passing through any additional given point. So in other words, you can draw a V, an arbitrarily pointy letter V, and then pick an arbitrary point inside the V, for instance, a point super close to the vertex of the V. Then there is always a hyperbola that fits inside the V and that passes through the designated point. You can hardly get any pointier than that, so can you? And yet, parabolas are nevertheless more pointed somehow, apparently, according to what Nets is telling us. Oh, by the way, this fact that I just mentioned about constructing a hyperbola within a given V, that is to say, uh, with given asymptotes, that is Proposition 4 of Book 2 of the Conics of Apollonius. Or is it? Actually, this is another interesting point. It seems that this proposition was actually not in the original version of the Conics, because Eutokius, in late antiquity, he needs this theorem at a certain point, and he says, oh, I better prove it, because it's not in the Conics of Apollonius. But then in the text that we have of, of, of the conics, what we call Apollonius's conics today, there this proposition is clearly included, and it does have the exact same proof that Eutokius introduces at that, uh, at this uh, in this other work. So in fact, the standard text that we call Apollonius's conics today comes to us only through that very same author Eutokius, who wrote a commentary on, on the conics, and he also preserved the text the Apollonius' own text at the same time. So it seems that Eutokius inserted this proposition about the hyperbola with given asymptotes into Apollonius' text, and it wasn't there in the original, but he added it because he had noticed in other works that it was a useful thing to prove for certain purposes. So Nets indeed describes this correctly, this whole story about the proposition being inserted uh, into the conics, which is all the more reason, of course, why Nets should have known that the hyperbola can be as pointy as you like, because this follows immediately from this proposition that he discusses at, at length here. But anyway, there's another kind of error here in Nets's discussion of this. The point that the proposition of, of the conics is an insertion by Eutokius. That insight, says Nets, is due to Wilbur Knorr, Nets's predecessor as a classics professor at uh, Stanford University. No one noticed that prior to Knorr, says Nets. But that is not true, in fact. Wilbur Knorr was not the first to discover this. In fact, Knorr clearly says so in his own article, the very article cited by Nets, which Nets has apparently not read very carefully. Already in the 16th century, Comandino, in his Latin edition of the Conics, very clearly and explicitly made the exact same point as Knorr, using the exact same evidence and argument, everything we just said, it's all there already. And that, in turn, Commandino's famous edition of the Conics was cited, and his argument about this proposition was cited in a 19th century German edition of the Conics, as Wilbur Knorr himself says in his article. So, indeed, Wilbur Knorr didn't discover anything except what people had already known for hundreds of years. You know, I think 
Nets is wrong about this and is not so innocent, really. How are we supposed to trust anything that Nets says if he makes blatantly false statements that are clearly and unequivocally seen to be factually incorrect by simply glancing at the very article that Nets himself cites in support of that very claim? But it's even more problematic than that, I think, in this example, because it's clearly not just a random mistake. It is an ideologically driven error that Nets makes. By saying that Stanford Humanities professor Wilbur Knorr was the first to make this important scholarly discovery, Nets is obviously indirectly boosting the impression that his own claims are important and novel, because he too is a Stanford Humanities professor. You know, Nets is not only saying that Wilbur Knorr was the first to discover this particular thing, he's implicitly saying that earlier generations of scholars missed important insights that only people like him, Stanford Humanities professors, are the true expert able to find out uh, those kinds of things. This is, of course, the point of the title of the book, once again, A New History of Greek Mathematics. In the past, everybody did it wrong. We need people like Nets to finally do it right. There's indeed a lot of explicit posturing to this effect uh, throughout the book from Nets. Let's look at another example of this. Let me read a passage where Nets is attacking uh, Thomas Kuhn's account of the history of astronomy. Thomas Kuhn, he wrote in the mid-20th century, he worked on the history of science, even though his PhD was in physics. So that is exactly the kind of people Nets wants to denigrate. He wants to say that only specialized humanities professors with their new histories are actual experts in the field. And here's what Nets says about Kuhn. Like most non-specialists, Kuhn supposed... You know, you can see I can cut the, off the quote right there. I told you, it's not just that... Kuhn was wrong, you know. It is that Kuhn epitomizes the kind of people, like people with a PhD in physics, for example, who need to be eliminated from the field because they make so many hopelessly naive assumptions without even realizing it and so on. And that's why we need new histories, etc., etc. Anyway, let's continue with the quote. Like many non-specialists, Kuhn supposed that Aristotle was broadly canonical from the beginning and that although the ancients offered various astronomical variations, these all had to agree with their Stilian framework. This is wrong. In fact, Aristotle was not canonized throughout most of antiquity. Greek philosophers were in continuous, ever-shifting debate. The very practices of astronomy went through several stages in antiquity before they became stabilized through the ultimate canonization of Ptolemy and of Aristotle only in late antiquity. Yes, indeed, I agree with Nets that mathematicians and scientists would have ignored Aristotle. Yes, that's true. Nets says it very well indeed. Here are some other quotes from Nets about this. In the 2nd century BCE itself, Aristotle was marginal even within philosophy, let alone to a scientist such as Hipparchus. For example, it is quite likely that Hipparchus never even read Aristotle's physics. And if you reassess ancient science in light of this perspective, then we come close to imagining a very Galilean Hipparchus. Yes, that is absolutely spot on. I agree. That is exactly what I have said before also about ancient science. So absolutely go team Nets on that one. Now, what about poor Thomas Kuhn, whom Nets used as a punching bag? Was he really that stupid? No, he was not. I went to my copy of Kuhn's book on the Copernican Revolution to check Nets's accusations, and here's what I found. Here's the quote from Kuhn's book. The great Greek philosopher and scientist Aristotle, whose immensely influential opinions later provided the starting point for most medieval and Renaissance cosmological thought. So, Kuhn says, indeed, exactly the opposite of what Nets accuses him of supposing, as was Nets's phrase, Later, Aristotle provided the starting point of scientific thought, not from the beginning, later, exactly what Nets himself is arguing. Here's another quote from Kuhn's book that says the same thing. Aristotle said a great many things which later philosophers and scientists did not have the least difficulty in rejecting. In the ancient world, there were other schools of scientific and cosmological thought, apparently little influenced by Aristotelian opinion. Even in the late centuries of the Middle Ages, when Aristotle did become the dominant authority of scientific matters, learned men did still, even then, not hesitate to make drastic changes in many isolated portions of his doctrine. So that's, those are Kuhn's words. There's no way you can read that and say that Kuhn supposed that Aristotle was canonical from the beginning. 
that is to say from his own lifetime onwards, Kuhn clearly says the opposite. Netzus accusation is just slander. So we have the same situation in, in, uh, in the Wilbur Knorr case and in the Kuhn case. Netz makes false assertions and then he cites sources that clearly and explicitly say, in fact, the exact opposite of what Netz alleges. Well, look, at least in these cases, Netz bothered to provide a reference at all. More often, he doesn't even do that. He allows himself the license to make assertions at will, which readers are supposed to accept on his authority alone, apparently. Consider, for example, the following rant about the alleged bias of uh, some unnamed past scholarship. Netz says, In past scholarship, this Babylonian achievement in astronomy was sometimes dismissed as merely practical. The Babylonians were unfavorably compared with the Greeks in that they did not produce a geometrical account of the sky and hence no physical model. So, unlike the Greeks, not real science. This is obviously an absurd special pleading where one defines as scientific whatever it is that the Greeks do and then reprimand the non-Greeks for failing to be Greek. The Babylonian theory is in fact directly analogous to the Greek mathematical theory of music whose scientific significance no one doubts. Well, there you have it, you know. No wonder that we need a new history of Greek mathematics, don't you think? The, the darn uh, past scholarship, you know, they couldn't think straight back then, you know. They were so biased in favor of the Greeks. Or why sugarcoat it, you know? Why doesn't it come out and say it, really? They were all racist, right? Isn't that the point? Thank God we have proper humanities-trained experts like Nets at last to save us from all that stuff. A new history of Greek mathematics, it basically means the first non-racist history of Greek mathematics, uh, that seems to be what Nets wants us to conclude. Look, uh, I agree that the arguments that Nets refutes are indeed uh, idiotic. But what is this so-called past scholarship that allegedly make this idiotic and basically racist assertion that Babylonian astronomy is not real science because it's not geometrical? Who ever said that? Well, no one I ever heard of. Maybe uh, Thomas Heath? You know, if Nets is the new history of Greek mathematics, then Thomas Heath's famous book is obviously the old history of Greek mathematics, written more than a hundred years ago. But no, I looked it up. Even old Heath explicitly uses the phrase Babylonian science with approval. Of course it was science. Perhaps Thales, in his travels, he learned of Babylonian science, for example, Heath says in exactly those words. So, who then is Nets arguing against exactly, except straw men that he has made up in order to be able to present himself as the anti-racist savior? You tell me. But enough uh, bickering about that. Uh, let's turn to uh, another issue, a big issue of major interpretative importance. According to Nets, Thales and Pythagoras did no mathematics whatsoever. So, according to Nets, Earlier generations of scholars naively believed in these fairy tales about Thales and Pythagoras, about the early history of Greek mathematics, because they blindly trusted a single source. I quote him. My predecessor Heath and many historians up until the last generation gave credence to the view according to which Thales and then Pythagoras made lasting contributions to mathematics. This derives almost entirely from Proclus's commentary, which, because of its overall sobriety, was taken seriously even for such obviously unfounded assertions. So, first of all, it is not true that this derives almost entirely from Proclus's commentary. It is disturbing that Nets makes this false and self-serving statement. Just read Heath, who Nets names in this very rant. Read Heath's chapter on Thales. Heath goes through the sources explicitly with references. There are several sources about Thales as a mathematician that predate Proclus. Several of those testimonies, as well as passages in Proclus, are explicitly attributed to various specific earlier authors and so on. So it, it's not the case that earlier generations of scholars just uncritically, blindly relied almost entirely on a single biased source as Nets dishonestly and falsely claims. Okay, let's look at Thales and Pythagoras uh, in turn. Let's start with Thales then. I've spoken before about this actually, if you recall uh, the idea that Thales was the originator of formal geometry. It does make good sense. Of course, it's all speculation because the, the sources are very imperfect, but nevertheless, it does add up. 
So the way that I told this story was based on two theorems attributed to Thales. And the first theorem is that the diameter cuts a circle in half. I described how one can show that result using a very neat proof by contradiction. The appeal, obviously, would not have been the theorem as such, but the realization, rather, that this kind of thing can be established by a very elegant and satisfying kind of reasoning, a rigorous argument based on paying careful attention to the definitions of concepts, like the definition of a circle, the definition of a diameter, and the remarkable power of proofs by contradiction for, for proving this kind of thing. And that's exactly the same aesthetic that one finds on the first pages of almost any modern textbook in abstract algebra, for example. Proofs of basic results are driven by carefully formulated definitions and very tidy proofs by contradiction. It makes sense that people would fall in love with this aesthetic that has stood the test of time for thousands of years. And it makes sense that it would have begun with a basic theorem, such as that the diameter bisects the circle, just as Asian sources suggest. A second theorem attributed to Thales is that a triangle inscribed in a circle with a diameter as one of its sides must be a right triangle. It's natural to arrive at this insight by playing around with ruler and compass. And the aha moment would then have been that one can prove this kind of stuff. You make a rectangle, you draw a diagonal, you draw the circumscribing circle, and now you're in business. You know, from playing with shapes, you have arrived at a proof of a universal truth. That's pretty cool. It makes sense that the idea of proving geometrical theorems might have started with something like that, as Asian sources suggest. Like this is just, of course, it may not have been literally just like that, but nevertheless, the the general picture that geometry might have started with Thales, it might have started with this kind of theorem, with this kind of proof that agrees with whatever the imperfect sources that we have. And it does make some sense, well, makes as much sense as any other alternative vision of how geometry might have started. So why not, you know, give some credence to these kinds of sources then? Uh, and I, that I, what I described here was the, my own version of this story, but, you know, Broadly, that something along those kinds of lines might have happened. That is pretty standard. It's kind of a well-known point of view. But Nets acts as if he has never heard of any of those things. And he pretends that people who believe that Thales initiated geometry, he pretends that those people are simply blindly taking Proclus's word for it without having thought it through uh, at all what that might have looked like. And Nets indeed says so explicitly. And here are his words. I suggest that Hippocrates' works were among the earliest pieces of Greek mathematics ever to be written. So, if we interject here, that's, that's Hippocrates, uh, considerably later than Thales then, famous for a very technical and detailed argument about the areas of loons, it's a kind of shape composed from, from circles, arcs of circles, and that looks a lot more like a, a specialized piece of technical geometry from a quite mature geometrical tradition. It seems like a very odd and obscure place to start doing geometry altogether, you know. And in reply to this observation, Ned says, this might seem surprising, the idea that Hippocrates was the originator of written geometry. Could mathematics emerge like that, springing forth from Seuss's head? Would we not expect mathematics to emerge in a more rudimentary form? In fact, I think this is precisely how we should expect mathematics to emerge from Seuss's head, fully armed. What would be the alternative? Of course, the very first mathematical works in circulation would contain remarkable, surprising results. Why else would you even bother to circulate them? I suspect that the counterfactual is sometimes not sufficiently carefully thought through here. Just what would a more rudimentary piece of mathematics look like? Would it prove some truly elementary results, such as, say, the equality of the angles at the base of an isosceles triangle? Why would anyone care about such a treatise proving such a result? It's baffling to me that Nets allows himself to make this lazy argument, as if no one has ever thought these things through. Nets states these as rhetorical questions, as if no one had ever thought of any of those things. Of course, people have thought about that, and they have compelling answers to Nets's questions. I just told you what the alternative to Nets's narrative is and why it would make sense. I'm not the first person to say this. 
Nets is too lazy to engage with alternative views in a serious way, so instead he quite dishonestly says that, oh, no one has ever thought through any alternative to, to his view, you know. So that's Thales. Uh, Nets rejects a, a plausible interpretation of the Thales testimonies in ancient sources by dishonestly mischaracterizing as hopelessly naive any scholars who adhere to, uh, to such views. All right, what about Pythagoras then? Heath had three full chapters on the mathematics of Thales and Pythagoras, exclamation point, uh, Nets says uh, triumphantly, suggesting that there is, uh, this is all the more proof that his new history of Greek mathematics is sorely needed. So anyone who believes in Pythagorean mathematics is stupid, according to Nets, and for this he relies on a famous book by Burkett. And here's how Nets describes it. Burkett's book, Lore and Science in Early Pythagoreanism, was a more careful, professionalized classical philology, keen to understand the authors we read not as mere parrots repeating their sources, but instead as thoughtful agents who shape and retell the evidence as suits their agenda. Pythagoras, under such a reading, crumbles to the ground. Almost everything comes to be seen as the making of later authors from Aristotle onwards. Never mind, the historians of mathematics went on as before. So we hear the ideological overtones in this passage, Burkert is Nets's kind of people. He is hailed as professionalized. And by contrast, the historians of mathematics went on as before. That is to say, the mathematically trained people working on history of mathematics, they were a bunch of fools, didn't realize what fools they were even. And, uh, you know, we would be much better off if professionalized experts, such as Burkert and presumably Nets himself then, would be given a monopoly on expertise uh, status in the field. I do not agree with this, neither in terms of content nor ideology. And regarding Pythagorean mathematics, since Nets himself does not go into any more depth, I will now analyze Berger's book itself, which Nets accepts as a gospel truth. So, a book review within a book review. Yes, here we go. So, according to Berger, the apparently ancient reports of the importance of Pythagoras and his pupils and laying the foundations of mathematics crumble on touch. And indeed, note that in phrase here is very important, the foundations of mathematics. I'm going to criticize Burkert, and I'm going to say that Burkert makes a naive and anachronistic assumption about what the foundations of mathematics are. When Burkert speaks of the foundations of mathematics, he takes for granted the traditional view that a core pillar of Greek geometry was a Platonist detachment from the physical world. As Burkert says... Greek geometry assumed its final form in the context of Plato's academy, after Plato had fixed his position as a discipline of pure thought. And indeed, Burkett's arguments against Pythagoras' mathematical significance, it, they are really arguments that Pythagoras did not advocate a proto-Platonist philosophy of mathematics. Burkett's overall thesis is that that which was later regarded as the philosophy of Pythagoras has its roots in the school of Plato. And indeed, he proves convincingly that uh, there are clear tendency to distort history in this way in the Platonic sources. It's not consistent with more reliable sources outside of this tradition. So, for instance, Burkett shows that when Proclus mentions Pythagoras in his catalogue of geometry, as it's called, and attributes to him a, quote, non-materialistic procedure in mathematics, then this comment by Proclus, unlike the rest of the catalogue of geometries, it is not based on the highly credible Eudemus, who you, you know, the, the best historian, who you would hope that Proclus would quote, but instead it is uh, copied from Iamblichus, it's to say from a biased Platonic tradition. So Proclus and Iamblichus, those are the uh, people with an axe to grind to put Plato in everything, and they, they are the guys who are corrupting the sources then, according to Burke's reading, and I think he's right. However, although from this it does not follow, of course, that Burgess tried to argue that Eudemus, the good source, did not mention Pythagoras as a geometer at all. It follows only that Eudemus, in this place, likely did not associate Pythagoras with uh, proto-Platonic views. Maybe he just mentioned that he was some geometer, not necessarily a, a non-materialistic geometry, you know, and that was enough reason for Proclus then to insert this extra comment that he has stolen from Iamblichus, plagiarized from Iamblichus. 
So possibly Eudemus had mentioned uh, Pythagoras. Who knows? Any case, Burkert he also observes that Aristotle says expressly of the Pythagoreans that they apply their propositions to bodies. So it brings out the distinction in this regard between them and all genuine Platonists. So Eudemus and Aristotle, they are clearly much more credible than these later sources, more biased sources, Iamblichus uh, and Proclus. So Berger's argument that Pythagoras alleged proto-Platonist philosophy of geometry, that is a fabrication of biased sources, yes, it's a pretty compelling argument by all means. However, it does not follow from that that the Pythagoreans did not take a profound theoretical foundational interest in geometry altogether. Now, Burkett, he doesn't, you know, he conflates these two conclusions because he sees no alternative path to theoretical mathematics than through a Platonic style abstraction, a detachment from physical considerations. Burkett believes that early work involving geometrical constructions is still not doing mathematics for its own sake. Instead, the discovery of pure theory was a later accomplishment, as he says it. If you have followed what I've said in the past, you know that I reject this uh, perspective. Burkert is naive to assume such a dichotomy between constructions on the one hand and pure theory on the other hand. Constructions were not the opposite of theory and therefore the opposite of the foundations of mathematics, as Burkert erroneously assumes. On the contrary, constructivism was the foundations of mathematics, according to my interpretation. So once we admit that possibility... There is every reason to think that earlier mathematicians, such as the Pythagoreans, could very well indeed have made profound and foundationally sophisticated contributions to mathematics, while at the same time rejecting Platonizing tendencies in the philosophy of geometry. Yeah, so what? They weren't Platonists. That doesn't mean they were not good mathematicians and foundationally inclined uh, mathematical theorists. So, we, indeed, uh, when going beyond his convincing case that the Pythagoreans were not Platonists, that, that part is good, what Burkett says, but then Burkett goes beyond that to a more general case of trying to minimize the significance of Pythagoras and his followers in the history of geometry altogether. Then, Burkett finds himself very much on the back foot indeed. He is forced to try to explain away Aristotle's very compelling statement that the so-called Pythagoreans were the first to take up mathematics, they advanced this study, and having been brought up in it, they thought its principles were the principles of all things. Burkett's uh, thesis leaves him little choice here, but to dismiss the centrality of mathematics, clearly implied in this statement, as a psychological conjecture of Aristotle, which the historian is not obliged to accept. You know, look, it's one thing to say that Proclus was wrong, that's plausible enough. Having to postulate that Aristotle was wrong, it comes at a higher cost, really. He didn't have those, those biases, why would he lie about the Pythagoreans, you know? And while Burkett was able to discredit Proclus's mention of Pythagoras in the Catalogue of Geometers, Burkett cannot deny that there are indeed numerous attributions of mathematical discoveries to Pythagoreans, and Proclus does say those things, and they are indeed based on Eudemus, the best source, according to, indeed, Burkert agrees that the stuff from Eudemus, that's very reliable indeed. So even Burkert, therefore, must admit that Pythagoreans made significant contributions to the development of Greek geometry. Now he hastens to add to that, but the thesis of the Pythagorean foundations of geometry cannot stand. So once again, you hear the emphasis on foundations of geometry. That's the difference between the two statements. The Pythagoreans did geometry, not foundations of geometry. Right? That's what he's, the distinction that he's making there. So once again, Berkeley's argument is based on tacitly assuming monolithic conception of what the foundations of Greek geometry consisted in. The constructivist reading of Greek geometry problematizes this naive assumption. It shows that you cannot simply take for granted that the foundations of geometry means what modern authors think it should mean, such as abstraction, etc., Constructivism offers an alternative vision according to which much early Greek geometry may very well have been very foundational indeed, only in a sense different from that that is commonly assumed a modern observers who can only see Platonism as the only solution. And this at very least raises the possibility that early traditions such as the Pythagorean tradition may very well have been much more foundationally significant than Berger's argument would have us believe. So, that's my opinion of Burkett. 
whose judgment Nets accepts unconditionally, far from being an unequivocal triumph of professionalized expertise over previous naivete, as Nets tries to make us believe, Burkett's account is indeed itself naive and by no means unquestionable. So, Nets is very fond of dismissing what the Asian sources say. All the stories about Thales and Pythagoras, that's just a bunch of fiction. To be sure, you know, of course, indeed, it is true that the Asian sources, they are highly imperfect. They definitely contain a lot of misinformation, self-contradiction and so on. Nevertheless, surely it is better to try to save some meaning in these stories than to almost take it as a, a point of pride to try to dismiss as much of it as possible, as if the more sources you dismiss, the more sophisticated a historian you are. It seems to be almost the, the game that Nets is playing sometimes. In fact, Nets indeed continues in the same vein for later Greek geometry as well. For example, the stories about Archimedes probably are fabricated, we are told by Nets. Stories such as, for example, Archimedes' use of the principles of hydrostatics to detect a fake uh, gold crown because the crown didn't have the right density properties, if you remember. That's the Eureka story. It's very famous. According to Nets, biographers concoct anecdotes based on the contents of authors' works. And this is clearly the case here. The story of the crown is a clear echo of Archimedes' study of solids immersed in liquids on floating bodies. So, look, how would this work exactly? Let us think through the counterfactual, as Nets admonished other people to do above. Alright, so Archimedes wrote a sophisticated technical work on floating bodies. For whatever reason, certainly not because of fake gold crowns and, and those kinds of things, those are just concocted anecdotes according to Nets. So uh, I guess then that Archimedes just woke up one day and he said to himself, oh, I think I would prove a bunch of theorems about hydrostatics which nobody has done before because I'm a mathematician and I just do things arbitrarily for no reason with no connection to the real world. And so, yes, that's what Archimedes decided to do one day. And so he wrote this detailed hyper-mathematical treatise on floating bodies. Theorem proof, theorem proof. All right. And then maybe hundreds of years later or something, I don't know, some other guy told himself, oh, hey, hey, I'm a writer. I'm going to write about the history of mathematics, but I won't find out any actual facts, you know, about history of mathematics. Instead, I'm going to pour over these extremely technical treatises that very few people can understand, and I'm going to master the content in, in great depth to the point where I'll be able to invent out of thin air some real-world scenarios that involve realistic and sophisticated applications of the complicated technical results found in those treatises. And my goal in doing so is to concoct a one-paragraph anecdote about, for example, Archimedes making a discovery in the bath that made him run naked uh, through the streets. Ah, you know, what a funny image, you know, to picture him running like that, screaming Eureka. Oh, great, you know, that's totally worth all those uh, probably hundreds of hours that I had to spend studying very complicated mathematics and then designing and working out my own research-level applied mathematics problem just so that I can make this little joke about Archimedes running from the bath. So that's apparently what happened if we are supposed to believe Nets. Personally, I doubt that storytellers were ever that good. You know, the story about Archimedes and the crown is really very good scientifically. The connection with the technical details of Archimedes' treatise, it's the real deal. If that's a fabricated anecdote concocted by a biographer, as Nets says, then that biographer was not only a storyteller, but one of the leading scientists of their age for being able to work out this stuff. So, for example, look, uh, I teach uh, calculus regularly. I always try to get students to think about physical meanings of mathematical notions, to interpret results in the context of a real-world scenario and stuff like that. And I can tell you that is an uphill battle, to, to say the least. I don't think Nets teaches calculus. I think he underestimates how hard it is to make up stories that simultaneously make scientific sense. It's, of course, on the other hand, quite easy to make up stories that do not make scientific sense. And that brings us to another one of Nets's theories. Nets has another book called Ludic Proof. Ludic, as in play, playfulness. According to this theory, mathematicians borrowed stylistic approaches from poets. 
poets had a fondness for cleverly constructing narratives that led to uh, surprising twist reveals, and mathematicians shared the same aesthetic according to Nets. Nets, in all seriousness, he proposes that this could in fact be the main reason why Archimedes did calculus-style calculations of areas at all, or why he even turned to mathematical physics at all. So the root cause of this, according to Nets, is supposed to be not ordinary scientific or mathematical motivations, but Archimedes' desire to do mathematics in the style of the poets. Mathematics was written always against the background of wider literary currents, emphasizing subtlety and surprise. So according to Nets, this is why Archimedes did calculus-style calculations of areas and volumes. Archimedes picked up a particular technique first offered by Eudoxus because its subtlety made a certain kind of surprise especially satisfying. Hence the infinitary methods. And this is also what made Archimedes apply mathematics to physics according to Nets. Archimedes saw the possibilities of applying geometry to a seemingly unrelated field, the study of centers of weights of solids. Because there was a particular payoff of subtlety and surprise to be obtained by the bringing together of apparently irreconcilable, maximally distinct fields of study. This was rather like Callimachus's poetry and hence the mathematization of physics. So there you go. Calculus, mathematical physics, they are just side effects of mathematicians pursuing their true goal, which was to imitate the poets. That is some absolutely uh, tinfoil hat level of crack pottery in my opinion. Look, it's one thing that Nets previously advanced this bizarre theory in a specialized monograph, you know. it's uh, Of course, it must be possible for scholars to try out unconventional ideas. But to put this crazy stuff in a survey history with a straight face, as if this was objective information that any beginner in the field needs to know, you know, that is really quite irresponsible in my opinion. Certain chunks of this book are not an introduction to the history of Greek mathematics, but an introduction to the pet theories of reveal Nets that no one but him believes. Let's look at some specific mathematical examples that are allegedly all about surprise, according to Nets. For example, Archimedes found the area of one revolution of the Archimedean spiral. How do you think he's going to do that? Well, you have probably already seen how Archimedes found the area of a circle. Naturally, readers of his more advanced treatise on spirals, they would already have read his more basic treatise uh, on the circle, presumably. Archimedes found the area of a circle by cutting it into wedges, as it were, equal angle pizza slices all the way around. So naturally, it makes a lot of sense to try the same idea for the spiral. The Archimedean spiral is kind of like a circle, but with a linearly growing radius. In polar coordinate, the radius r is proportional to the angle, theta. So when we apply the method we use for the circle to the spiral, we get a bunch of equal angle wedges that gradually get bigger and bigger and the radius grows linearly with the angle, so the radii of the wedges, they form an arithmetic progression. For every equal increment of the angle, the radii increase by the same amount, let's say, for example, alpha. In the Archimedean spiral, it starts with radius zero, so then you have the first radius is alpha, the second one two alpha, three alpha, and so on, for whatever, some constant number alpha. So to, to get the area of the spiral, obviously we're going to have to add up all of these little wedges, along the way, and obviously the areas scale like the square of the radii, you know, linear scaling of distances means square scaling of areas, so since the radii went alpha, two alpha, three alpha, therefore the areas will be proportional to alpha squared, two alpha squared, three alpha squared, and so on. So, to get the area, we have to add up a series of squares, the squares of numbers in an arithmetic progression. And indeed, Archimedes has a theorem that does exactly this. That is his proposition 10 of his treatise of spirals. Now, did you find any of these things surprising? I don't think so. It was a predictable extension of the idea that we have already used for the circle. And the trick of getting a complicated area or a complicated volume by an infinite uh, series sum of simple components, that is also a well-established trick. Archimedes used the same trick for the area of a parabolic segment, for example. Euclid used it as well, for instance, for the volume of tetrahedron. It's in the Euclid's elements. Everybody knows about that. The sum of a geometric series was the key ingredient in those cases. 
And now for the spiral, we need the same kind of theorem, but in place of a geometric series, it's going to be the series that consists of uh, the squares of numbers in an arithmetic progression. So, very predictable, business as usual for a Greek geometer, just similar to what's happening in elements and so on. Nets doesn't think so. According to Nets, the reader of Archimedes trees this is not supposed to have been able to see those things at all, and instead you're supposed to have been baffled by the introduction of this Proposition 10, this theorem about the sum of the series. So they're obviously not supposed to have been able to realize that this series is clearly the same kind of error calculation by series that had been well known since Euclid, at least. And also, they're not supposed to have realized that the particular terms of the series obviously corresponds to uh, the most natural way of cutting up the spiral area by, with equal angle increments. And here is what Nets says about this. Archimedes aims at surprise. The key point is that as Proposition 10 is introduced, Archimedes makes all effort to disguise his potential application. The key observation that the sectors in a circle behave as the series of squares on an arithmetic progression is not asserted in advance. Instead, the application of Proposition 10 is postponed and revealed only at the very last minute when, introduced in the middle of Proposition 24, it finally makes sense of the argument. Everything is designed for the sake of this denouement, where finally the narrative of the treatise would make sense in a surprising turn. The ugly, misshapen Proposition 10 is really about sectors in spirals. The duckling was a swan all along. I think this is nonsense. I don't think Archimedes' readers would have been surprised at all by any of this. Today, we teach our mathematics students, when you read a theorem, before you look at the proof, take a few minutes to think about how you would prove it yourself. And then, when you read the proof, you will understand it much better. You will know which parts are easy and obvious. You just came up with those yourself. And you will also appreciate the difficult parts, what they're trying to do, because you will have realized when trying to prove it yourself that certain steps would have to involve some real work. I bet Archimedes readers did the same. They get the treatise by Archimedes, a key result of which is the area of a spiral, and indeed the, the, the treatise comes with a prefatory letter by Archimedes himself, where he highlights the key results, so obviously you already know where it's heading, that the area of the spiral is going to be a big target, a goal of the treatise, for example, so you certainly don't just start you know, reading cold from, from A to Z. So if you follow the, these readers, presumably they would have followed the elementary advice that we teach to all our undergraduates, without which you will never get far in mathematics, namely to try to prove it for yourself before reading the solution. Then readers who did that would very quickly realize that the obvious approach is to cut the spiral area into wedges and sum the components, which will obviously lead to a series of squares of numbers in an arithmetic progression. So when you get to Archimedes Proposition 10, you will be far from surprised. On the contrary, you already knew all along that he, he would have to do this sum. That's the most natural thing that you would expect if you had spent five minutes trying to predict the course of his proof before you read it. Let's look at another example of a so-called ludic proof. If you point a parabolic mirror at the sun, then all the rays of the sun are reflected toward a single point, the focus of the parabola. Diocles proved this in antiquity. The ludic part, allegedly, is that he first proved some properties of tangents and normals of a parabola, and only then he introduced a line parallel to the axis, which represents the, the rays of the sun. Oh, surprise! It was all about rays of the sun all along. Who could ever have guessed that saying something about the tangent first would be relevant to this? Oh, except, of course, someone who read the, the title of the treatise or has some basic mathematical competence. Well, here's how Nets describes it. Diocles' proof of the focal property of the parabola is palpably Archimedean. Same emphasis on subtle surprise, down to the intentional delay in the construction of the parallel line, so that, throughout the argument, we do not yet see the relevance of any of it for the optics of the sun. So, the surprise, so-called, is that basic properties of the tangent of the parabola are relevant to the optics of the rays of the sun. Oh, what a shocking reveal! Since the solar ray had not been drawn yet, there is no way we could have known this, you know, according to Nets. Once again, any mathematically competent person who looks at this problem for five seconds will realize that, of course, it's going to involve the tangent. The notion that 
mathematically competent readers would not have been able to see the relevance of theorems about tangents for the optics of the rays of the sun is completely ridiculous. And yet, that very notion is the cornerstone of Nitz's uh, ludic proof interpretation of this episode. In fact, there's another bit of nonsense here as well. Diocleti talks about the tangent of a parabola, and Archimedes also talked about tangents of parabolas in some other work. Aha! Therefore, Diocles' proof is really a brilliant variation on an Archimedean theme, according to Nets. This is the way of thinking that uh, perhaps makes sense in, in literary history, you know. Poets and playwrights, they like to draw inspiration from earlier masterpieces and rework their themes in a new way. Nets, he tries to do the same thing for mathematics. In my opinion, the results are nonsensical. What Nets is saying is like saying that if uh, person A gives a mathematical argument involving the derivative of a quadratic function, and then person B gives a completely different argument that has nothing to do with the first one, except that it also involves the derivative of a quadratic function, then person B's argument is a variation of person A's theme, according to Nets. In my opinion, that's rubbish. Of course, tangents of parabolas, they show up regularly in mathematics. Well, that doesn't mean that anyone who is talking about the tangent of a parabola is therefore subtly reworking what earlier authors have done. In the, you know, that may be how literature works. It is not how mathematics works. So in this case, as in so many others, Nets's new history is what you get when you look at mathematics through eyes attuned to the humanities, but not to mathematics. Indeed, Nets's description of the mathematics is factually wrong as well. In this case, too, Archimedes and Diocles, they both state the tangent theorem in terms of, according to Nets, the intercept between tangent and ordinate. But no, that's, that's not right. It's the intercept between the tangent and the axis, actually, not ordinate axis. Oh, well. But it's not my goal, you know, to catalog all the mathematical errors in Nets's book. Uh, look, if you take a humanities professor as a guide to mathematics, then you have only yourself to blame anyway. All right, and that concludes my book review. Thank you very much.